Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. David Eberhardt was one of the Baltimore Four, along with Phil Berrigan, and David spent 21 months in prison for pouring blood on Selective Service draft records. David's book, For All the Saints, a protest primer, details his experience with the hit-and-stay action, his time in prison, and his insights and lessons into protests and activism, and much more. David is interested in successful actions with special interests in groups like the Kings Bay Plowshare 7, World Beyond War, and the Catholic Worker Movement. You can email David for more information or to get a copy of his book. David Eberhardt joins us from Baltimore, Maryland. Dave, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Glad to do it. I received your book, For All the Saints, a protest primer by David Eberhardt a couple weeks ago, been reading it and absorbing all that you did past and how you've continued that forward in your life. What I want to start out with for our Spirit in Action listeners is for you to give a description of the action that you were part of that was called the Baltimore Four. October 1967, four of us enter the Customs House in Baltimore, Maryland, where the draft boards had been consolidated from spots around town out of fear of our attacks. (laughs) We are driven there by the press. Never happened now. Uh, The four, Father Phil Berrigan, me, Tom Lewis, Reverend Jim Mangle. Tom gives a signal. We proceed into the big room where the draft boards and their files are. We proceed to go to the cabinets, pour out the drawers, pour blood, which we had in Mr. Clean bottles, on the files. And then we sit down and wait for the authorities. Now, we had drawn a little bit of blood from ourselves, but the syringe was too big. And we got the blood from a Polish market, duck's blood. One newspaper called it chicken blood, trying to make us look like chickens. But these actions were not hit and run. They were hit and stay. As a matter of fact, a good documentary movie called Hit and Stay is available on the draft board actions. You would wait and make a thing of the trial, a theater piece. Most known is the trial of the Catons of Mine because poet Dan Berrigan, who was one of the members, put it down in writing. Ours was not the first. Someone up in your area, the Bondus family, took feces to the draft board. And that's the one that I know of before ours, the one group action. Ours was the first to try to get attention and got worldwide attention on the uh, New York Times and so forth. So it also started a movement of some 300 other actions. And uh, I follow them in my book reunions. I go on to the plowshares actions, which is anti-nuclear after the first plowshare action, 1983, where eight persons went into the king of Prussia, Pennsylvania, was a GE plant and banged on uh, missile nose cones and poured blood. Blood pouring has been kind of a part of many actions. 
So that is a brief description of my blood pouring, and it's on YouTube if you Google David Eberhardt, Baltimore 4. I come up with about five minutes of description. And I will have a link to that on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Actually, I'm going to have several links, folks. So NordenSpiritRadio.org, David Eberhardt is the program that you're listening to. And on that, I'll have links to the the Kings Bay Plowshare 7, World Beyond War, Catholic Worker, and we also find David's email on our website, so you can contact him. You might want to get a hold of his book, and you can arrange with him, although it's also, I understand, out on Amazon? Yeah, it is $5 to mail, 20 for me to print, self-published with FedEx, but I will send free if you promise to display it, read it, sell it for your own donation if you're a peace movement or Catholic worker group. I'm not in it for the money. Well, I'm going to go into, in some detail, the event that you just talked about, you just described, the Baltimore Four, but I especially am interested in start knowing you, something that led to a life of witness, a life of work. Let's start out on the religious, spiritual side. I understand your father was originally a Presbyterian minister, became Episcopal minister. You were active with Catholic worker a fair amount. And how do you identify today? Well, I'm Zen Sufi, if any. I'm very spiritual, but I don't follow any uh, organized. Of course, Phil Berrigan was my biggest influence, my mentor. I had a big mentor in the civil rights movement, too, a guy named Walter Carter, and we got arrested there. But I call my motives a hairball. I do come from the yippie side a little bit more, perhaps, than the religious side, although I went to a prep school where we went to chapel every day. My influences are a lot literary, poetry, which I am a poet, and music. The hymns of my childhood are coming upon me now at 81. What a friend we have in Jesus. It's really striking me lately, and it's just so kind of... uh, hmm. I rebelled against all that, but the songs, the hymns we sang in prep school, once to every man and nation comes the moment to choose, what's the word? That's by the poet Lowell from Boston. Was it James Russell Lowell? Then William Blake's Jerusalem. I can hardly say it without being emotional. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my chariots of gold, and we will build Jerusalem. These kinds of influences just seep in to me. And wanting to make a mark, seeing martyrs in Mississippi, the three, Goodman, Schwerner, Cheney, loving adventure, loving sports, looking for action. What do you do for action in this place? It's kind of a mantra for me. I really enjoy the World Cup final. <laughs> but the book, For All the Saints, yeah. you've got the song right there on the cover of the book. Why that particular song? What's that one mean for A you? A great uh, Episcopal hymn with music by Ralph on Williams. And the words, for all the saints who from their labors rest. And you think of the saints through the years. St. Perpetua is a favorite of mine. She's in the Coliseum at Carthage, I guess. And she tells the centurion, just get it over with, and he cuts her throat. 
but also she's abused by beasts before she's killed. And get this, you mentioned your, your like of humor. One of the beasts listed is a heifer. How the hell is a heifer, <laughs> heifer going to threaten a saint? I guess, you know, it could, but you think basically of lions and tigers. But saints, to me, uh, Dorothy Day, who founded Catholic Workers, being considered for sainthood, people that took risks, that suffered greatly for their beliefs. And in Baltimore, we had a couple that were inspiring to me. Norman Morrison, who was a Quaker, went to the Pentagon, doused himself with gasoline and immolated himself. He took his daughter and he set her down beside him. Apparently, McNamara could see this from his office. William Moore was a postman who was very into the civil rights movement. He went to uh, the South, Mississippi or Alabama with a sign reading black and white, eat at Joe's, and he was shot. So these kinds of influences, I mean, the, the idea of risk with action, Kings Bay 7, go into the sub-base in Brunswick, Georgia at night. Then there's seven of them wandering around for a couple of hours. They go to different places. But one of the places is the bunkers where the nukes are stored, and it's a kill zone. In other words, you can be shot for going there. The Transform Now plowshares in Knoxville at the nuclear site there, they had to go through barbed wire fences. They entered a kill zone. So these actions, are they less effective now? What's the relation of risk and going to prison? So how does this compare with other people that that get noticed as saints? So, you know, Mother Teresa, right? She She's a saint. Is she a saint in the same category? The ones you're talking about are generally martyrs as well. Yes. Well, Phil spent 11 years of his life in and out of prison. In terms of giving your life to uh, the cause, another thing I ponder is violence, nonviolence. And I, I just waffle because there was a great NPR show a couple of days ago on the movie High Noon and the fact that the guy, Carl Foreman, who wrote it, called before the House on American Affairs Committee. He had been a communist. But the story he intended as a parable where Gary Cooper, the marshal, his wife, who's a Quaker and against violence, Emily, wants to leave town because he's going to wait when these three thugs that he sent to prison are coming back to town. And you know the townspeople know they're going to try to run the thing and get rid of him. And she says, come on, let's let's leave. You're, just, you're going to get shot. And there's the famous gunfight at the end. And Emily, who was going to leave herself, came back and actually shot one of the thugs. No, I, that always struck me in that movie. <laughs> no, no. But, um, you know, talk about violence, nonviolence. You think of um, fighting back and when it's justified. I just can't. You know, famous question for us conscientious objectors, and I was one. Uh, what could you do if your grandmother's being attacked? You, know? and you get these hypothetical, well, if it's a hypothetical question, I'll give you a hypothetical answer. I'll pull out my Star Wars wand and make the uh, attacker disappear. <laughs> you know? But hypotheticals, but then there are these real situations where I think even the Buddha, knowing in advance that people on a ferry boat were going to capsize, what did he do? Kill the person that was letting the ferry boat loose? Or, there, 
it, you know, it's tricky. I just not, I'm into nuance. I'm not, I'm an existentialist. I'm not into purity, although I think pacifism is certainly called for in extreme forms as a teaching mechanism. The fact that someone will say, I'm not going into war at all. I'm not going to kill anybody. Your poet, Robert Lowell, Dave Dellinger, famous pacifists in the U.S. It's, it's justified, but to each, resist according to your own talents. Would you call Phil and Daniel Berrigan, would you, do you think they were saints? In terms of historical sainthood, I think Dorothy Day said she doesn't want to be a saint. But um, in terms of those definitions, as you say, they were martyrs, most of them. So it doesn't exactly fit the mold. And then it's such a Catholic. Uh, the saints of old inspire us. I don't know that Dan and Phil would be, would qualify for sainthood. You certainly said you make a point in the book for all the saints. You talk ab about Phil a fair amount because you were so close to him. You, I mean, you were cellmate with him. Right. And you talk about how he inspired you. I don't think you would have been part of the Baltimore Four if it had not been for Phil. Exactly. Looking for a mentor for many callow youths like myself, looking for direction. If you could find a good mentor, you should, unless you've got it within yourself. I mean, with the 300 or so draft actions after ours, the organizing of them is interesting. But Phil and Dan were great inspirations to many, and they attended the retreats where these things were organized. Now, Dan was better known than Phil. 52 books of poetry, too many, I would say. But Phil's books are great, too. And my father was somewhat of a hawk, but he, he came around. And he pretty much had to, being a minister and professor of philosophy of religion. He realized that we were doing what the Old Testament prophets, Amos, Isaiah, what they were doing. And he saw that connection. And so he told me, this is going to be the greatest moment in your life. My own father, you know, who had, and he would visit in prison. And he was, he became quite proud of, of what we did. It was a radical action, even for the time. And I, again, we're talking 1967, when you and the other three went in, poured blood on the draft files. And by the way, folks, when you read For All the Saints, you'll note there's workers who are there, some of whom are incensed by the action, want to stop you from pouring blood on these files. Was it more exciting, scary? Or were you just feeling the energy like, oh, yeah, I'm becoming one of the saints or something? I don't know. How were you thinking of yourself in the moment? I'm there with my buddies. Like the soldier says, I'm, I'm not really uh, here for policy. I'm here to be with my buddies. I don't think I was even afraid. I was numb to a degree. Hopefully, we pull this action off and it doesn't get fouled up like so many do. I mean, some of the draft board actors were caught before they even got into the draft board. And because they were informers, like with the Camden 28, they were acquitted by the jury because one of their members was an FBI informant. And he had bought the tools they were going to use to mess up the files. So, no, I guess, what do you do for action in this place? And with someone like Phil Barrigan, I was quite confident that uh, I was right and I had no fear.
Would you have been more reluctant, you know, afraid, whatever, if you had at all anticipated the number of months that you would be spending in prison because of this? No. We had all been to jail for limited amounts of time, different actions. It was like that increase in magnitude of, of effect. We knew something momentous would be a consequence, but like W.H. Auden, the poet writes, uh, motives like stowaways are found out too late. But even so, uh, we faced on four counts, each one 10 years, thousands of dollars fine, and we end up with uh, me three years doing 21 months on three years. And prison was a was a good experience for me. I needed something to write about. I knew that just going on as a teacher and I ended up as a social worker at the Baltimore City Jail. I got a lot of stories there, but I mean, talk about humor. I, I would love to share one short prison story to make your listeners laugh. I'm at Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary after a month or so in the secure spot, which is called The Wall. I go to the farm camp and I had various jobs there, but one was at the dish machine in the kitchen. And Carmine Galente, notable mafia hitman, was showing Joey, who just arrived, he was showing him around and he brings him in to the dining room and he says, Now, now Joey, this is Abahot, you know, New Jersey accident. This is for Manhattan, Bronx, whatever. This is Abahot. He's a good man. He's part of the Berrigan gang. And Joey says, <laughs> Joey had, was suffering from, he was recuperating from some bullet wounds to the stomach. Joey says devoutly, he says, yeah, the nuns and the priests and so forth. Ain't it a shame? <laughs> <laughs> Many stories, humorous stories. I met Jimmy Hoffa in Lewisburg and came up behind him in the hall one time and clapped him on the back. I said, look out for that nonviolence, Jimmy. And a little while later, where Phil, the Catholic priest, and me are the only ones, white guys eating in the dining room where African-Americans are, we, we integrated it. One of Jimmy's Teamster bodyguards comes up behind me. He says, hey, kid, he says, don't come up behind Jimmy like that. He won't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I'm a little bit confused. You're talking about a mafia hitman, and he's in the low security area as opposed to the the higher security area you originally were in he was yeah he was on the farm camp i think they wanted to separate him from vinnie provenzano another mafia guy they were both blown away after they got out of prison but they were feuds so they might move a guy to the low security farm camp just to avoid any uh bloodshed inside the wall the wall at lewisburg is a built in the um, 20s or 30s. It's like a model after uh, some European castle thing. It's got a big tower. And it's really a formidable looking place. Now, when we were there, the main culprits would be the international drug smugglers, people from D.C., because that's any crime there can become federalized, moonshiners, but mostly uh, interstate commerce people, which led to a lot of Teamsters. So again, my question had been, would you have done this action if you had known you'd spent the time in jail? You were actually, as you describe it, 
it's not a horrible, harrowing time for you in prison. Uh, there was a little bit of fear of being raped. Yes. Back when, you know, young, attractive men, I guess, back then. So there, there's some of that. I would also figure that being separated from your lover, being separated from the one that you want to spend with for 21 months, that's a pretty high price to pay. Yeah. Well, Phil married me and Louise the night before the blood pouring. She was a big influence on me. I'm a mentor in terms of another movement at that time. Well, she was a staunch feminist, but she supported me. And there was a sensitivity movement. Of course, that was after I got out. But for us males, getting in touch with our feelings. I meditate on Franz Kafka's statement, we must take an axe to the frozen seas within us. Because after prep school, an all-boys prep school, I was just very rigidly composed. But leaving her, she was so strong and independent had her job and I wasn't worried about that and she supported me she visited me and we we loved each other for a while afterwards and then then we were divorced so that wasn't much of a cost for you to be separated from her for 21 months not at all no I don't know why particularly maybe I didn't look at love as a uh, or marriage is that kind of a bond where you're going to be destroyed because you you're separated for a while. You have your own lives, you know, what you're going to. And she is very free-spirited. I ask this in part because so many people might consider being activists, except they have fears about any number of things related with prison being separated from their life, in addition to maybe being hurt themselves. What might have been the biggest motives for you not to be part of the Baltimore Four? can't think of a thing. The influences... I had all led me to that point. Now, people have different talents. Resist according to your talents. I mean, there were people with a student mobilization who were great organizers. There are people that are fantastic speakers. You've got to go according to your talents. And mine was just maybe to be a, not a slavish puppy dog, but a follower of a iconic priest and being willing to take risks. Again, what do you do for actions? Like you're going to go through your life and come up to to the end, realize you never did anything. I mean, we can't have that. I, I was lucky to take a strong action at an early age and then be informed by that the rest of my life. Phil kept doing these types of actions. I ended up working 33 years at Baltimore City Jail. I founded the branch of uh, Offender Aid and Restoration in Baltimore, helping inmates. So I got to go home every night into my own bed, but I wasn't afraid to go in and out of jail every day. I'd been in prison. I knew what it was. I knew what inmates were and kind of enjoyed their wild, stupid uh, behaviors. Most of them didn't want to get caught. We didn't mind. We got Christmas cards from North Vietnam. We had a huge support system. So going to jail, going to prison, if you've got that support system, is it an effective tactic now? What, what are I constantly thinking about? That's why I mentioned World Beyond War and the, their organizing, their directions, their chapters, their educational efforts. Someone like William Barber with People Poverty Campaign, he, he's from North Carolina. He's like the 
most like Martin Luther King person alive today, William Barber. And people that build a movement, he's not going into prison every day. You need him where he is. But the, the angle of the relationship of risk in prison to effectiveness, something I think about nonviolence, violence is another thing. But, you know, I, I have plenty of things to do with the peace movement, with my poetry and playing the piano. I, I practice the piano and classical piano mostly every day. Folks, I just want to remind you, this is Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, where you find links to all of our guests. And David Eberhardt, who's here today, he doesn't have his own website, although uh, if you come to northernspiritradio.org in this program, you'll find his email. He's happy to have you reach out and contact him. 1941 Mireille at gmail.com. Mireille is M-I-R-E. E-I-L-L-E. But again, it's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You also find links to the Kings Bay Plowshare7.org, to WorldBeyondWar.org, CatholicWorker.org, and you'll find his email. So rather than memorizing them all as I say them right now, just come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org, find them, and find links to all of my guests, people doing world healing work for the past 17 and a half years that I've been doing this program. You'll also find links to the stations that carry our programs. There's some between 35 and 45 of them nationwide carrying our shows. So please support those stations, community radio stations, broadcasting alternative news. I'm sure it's quite clear to Dave that media is important in terms of bringing about societal change. You said, Dave, by the way, that you rode to the action with the press. Press gives you a ride there. I suppose you didn't want to have cars left there after you get hauled off into jail. Well, I wrote for the underground newspapers and the importance of media. I mean, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, your show, you were telling me before of the influence in Wisconsin of right-wing radio. And we have the same thing here in Baltimore. There's so little. I mean, we have passion just like guys in the right wing. Let's say the guys of January 6th with their passion. What do you do for action in this place? But the media has been absent MIA except for shows like yours. And I end up writing a lot of letters to the Baltimore Sun papers, very rarely getting them in. I, one of my big issues now is gun control. And people read letters to the editors. They don't read poetry. They don't read manifestos by the Kings Bay Plowshare 7, but they read, in other words, getting the word out. How are we going to do this? Because we have a very good message. CNN, MSNBC, at least have a bit more of fact uh, production than Fox News, and yet they just straddle the fence. They, they've worn out their crotch cloth, the mainstream media, by straddling the fence. And there's this side, and then there's that side, but at least they give the liberal side, and they uh, can see how crazy Republicans and the right wing is. I, My partner is very active with a group called Spark in the U.S., it is largest in France, where it's called Lute Ouvrière, and it means workers' struggle. Their means of building a movement is to talk one-on-one with persons that are interested, 
notably, uh, hopefully, factory workers, workers. But when you get into the whole left, which I've done more and more since prison, very few leftists that I meet in prison. But as I have aged, I've become more familiar with Marx and socialism. I guess I'm a democratic socialist per se, but pacifism is another story. So, folks, do please support the community radio stations like those that carry Northern Spirit Radio programs. Do support Democracy Now! We need alternative media. And if you want to support us, Northern Spirit Radio, come to nordenspiritradio.org. There's a place to donate. But also, post comments. We need two-way communication. We need you hooked in to the information that we're passing on. So, please, do support all of the alternative media and make sure it continues because mainstream media is not going to carry the message we need. And write your uh, newspapers, letters to the editors, particularly on the gun issue. There's so many good arguments for gun control. I mean, the UK and Japan, individual ownership of guns is prohibited. And we just look so absurd and insane. I want to get back, Dave, to your actual action. You were pouring blood, and you said that with Plowshares Movement, they've also used pouring of blood as a symbol. But following that, the Catonville, Catonville 9, and there was, they were actually burning draft files. And you talk a little bit about the pros and cons in your book for All the Saints, a protest primer. You talk a little bit about the pros and cons of ways of witnessing. Do you now think that burning would have been better than pouring blood? Well, Phil did. And George Mishy, who was a member of the Cadenceville Nine, was president of our trial. And the lawyer at one point asked the selective service people that claimed that we had defaced the files and depredation. That was what that was the word depredation. The lawyer said, you mean to say that you don't have backups to your files? If someone destroyed the files, burned, that uh, that'd be it? And the lady says, yeah. And George, light bulb went on over his head. <laughs> We're going to burn the files next in terms of, you know, really destroying them. We, our files, of course, they didn't want to touch them, fearing the blood might carry some disease, I guess, but they were easily cleaned. And I think Phil and Tom actually poured blood on files that weren't 1A ready to be drafted. I was a draft counselor. I knew what files to go that were important for my blood pouring. They might have got veterans of World War II or some damn thing, but, you know, the symbolism of it. They were fiendishly clever. The um, Women Against Daddy War Books, they cut draft files into strips. The Chicago 8, or was it the Rhode Island group? One of them poured bleach on them. <laughs> they put the files in the tub and then poured bleach on them. And, you know, there were quite few different creative tactics. The best one was just to spread the, the actions and to show selective service, which we did, That and it ended. And now it's volunteer army, so you don't have people like me being drafted. People want to go. They volunteer for jobs or what have you, just to give their life meaning. But yeah, for tactics, building a movement. Wow, that is the thing. With the peace movement, especially in any 
country. I mean, where is peace movement strongest? You could say Japan. And they just established uh, some weaponry, which had been forbidden since World War II. Germany has more of a knowledge of nonviolence since their role in World War II. But how to build a movement? And we're very creative, more so than the right-wingers, I think. The right-wingers, look at them from January 6th. When they go to trial, none of them, or very few, make a theater of it. Most of them are saying, I was dumb, I was stupid, I apologize. Somebody like Stuart Rhodes maybe said some things and, you know, putting forth the philosophy of the Oath Keepers. I don't, don't recollect that he did. They don't have the creativity of building a movement, which is hopefully true. But the, they're so angry and the base is angry with them and not educated. So they could build a movement just by fear alone. We're trying to build a movement that's anti-fear and people, you know, they'd rather flight than fight or fight and flight. But um, in terms of getting together with others and kumbaya, you know, that's a difficult sell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to get a few more aspects. Again, folks, we're speaking with David Eberhardt, his book, For All the Saints, a protest primer. In the book, by the way, David, I, there's some things about the book I want to make clear. The book is an assemblage of different parts. It focuses on your part in 1967 Baltimore 9 action. That's really the core of it, but there's so many other layers that go with it. And you refer to the book. Is this uh, one of the succeeding editions of the book? I, I think it's evolved over the decades, perhaps. It has. Since I self-publish, I can come up with 50 more from FedEx for about a thousand bucks now and add what I want. And the latest one has two reviews of books, the Berrigan Letters and then Frida Berrigan's book, It Runs in the Family. And yes, it has gone through six I collect books, so I'm interested in editions, and each one is signed and numbered. But if you self-publish, that's an example. Uh, that's a uh, plus. The first half is a narrative up to when I get out of prison, and that's where a lot of juicy stories are. But then I go, as you say, into the different actions that have meant a lot to me, namely, well, the funerals of my friends, and then the Transform Now action, which was in Knoxville, where three elderly people attacked the enriched uranium storage thing there. And then recently, the Kings Bay 7, they, as I said before, they went in at night and went to different locations on the base. When they were finally apprehended, you know, they could have been shot, but you wonder if this base was not prepared to a degree. I suppose that all the bases say we might have some demonstrators that aren't terrorists per se. But the guy that caught him says, you know, you're in a heap of trouble. That's his words to them. He has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they end up spending more, less time than me. I mean, more a couple of years in prison. And then they fill, fill uh thought prison was a good organizing point, although he kind of puts down one action that his fellow prisoners took. He said the demands weren't good. Dan was less 
favorable because he almost died at Danbury when his teeth were being worked on. And he he was not as gung-ho as Phil in that respect. But the Berrigan letters, the letters between them, reveal a depth which you don't get from manifestos. They reveal their personal views and even differences where at one point Dan says, so, you know, you've got too much anger about you. You remind me of, you, of our father. And Phil makes comments about living in community and how difficult that is. He says, I worry about going to prison and leaving Liz, his wife, and kids with all these juvenile secular protesters that are living at the house. He says, they just babble on in the meetings. But then he also says, I, I do get a lot from meetings and other viewpoints. I want to talk about a couple more things about time in prison, time in jail. You, David Eberhardt, ended up spending 21 months in prison because of that. You say in the book that it would be a different thing if you were dealing with the prisons of El Salvador or something like that. The consequences did make a difference, would make a difference to you, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah, you would think twice, no question. With us, um, the guards in the federal system, the other inmates, was just a higher level than the state prisons. And I, working at the Baltimore City Jail for 33 years, the guards liked what I did. Our organization made the place more livable. We're giving the inmates hope, showing them programs, NAAA, yoga, writing class. But the inmates liked us too. So it was easy enough of a job. And I, in terms of the riots and violence at the Baltimore City Jail, Mostly happened on sea shift, I guess. I never witnessed any of it. I mean, my biggest danger point was um, when I was the manager of the laundry at the main prison at Lewisburg, and somebody told me they're about ready to take your cakes. And I got a job switch, which actually landed me in the warden's office sorting out his papers until he realized, hey, this guy destroyed papers. (laughs) (laughs) And I left that job. But also, one other point of violence I experienced was in the civil rights movement when I was getting gas at a rural station out in Baltimore County. And the guy knew who I was, and he he tried to beat me up. But that was it. Never anything. But, yeah, uh, when you see on TV the uh, documentaries of Jailed Abroad on on, um, Discovery Channel and (laughs) what the people go through. Oh, my God. But certain prisons in the federal system have had bad reputations. I think Atlanta, when when I was in Atlanta, was bad. Marion uh, is in Indiana or Illinois. But in terms of prisons with reputation for violence, I was there with a protector. I was groomed with Phil. I ate with him. And that's Phil Berrigan, folks. Yeah, and there had been conscientious objectors that were raped before my time there. So, you know, if you were vulnerable, you best be prepared. Let's talk a bit, Dave, about why you went up. I mean, you worked for 33 years in Baltimore jail. 
And that didn't seem an obvious career path. I mean, you're a poet, amongst other things, an activist. But did you find that as some kind of a logical step in your life, or was it just the easy one? Had you created camaraderie with people in prison, in jail? What led that way? Yeah, it came very naturally because my first job after prison, meaningful job, was given me by George Mishy of the Catonsville Nine. He had founded a group. National Coordinating Committee for Justice Under Law in D.C. So I edited the newsletter. And after that, I went to the National Moratorium on Prison Construction, also in D.C., which was an outreach of the Unitarian Universalist Church based in Boston. And there also edited the newsletter and lobbied on Capitol Hill. So when that came to an end, I had met the people associated with an organization called OAR, Offender Aid and Restoration, Jay Worrell, who was Quaker out of Charlottesville, that started it. The idea was you would recruit volunteers and then match them with inmates in jails, not prisons, but jails. And the organization grew to some 20 offices. Now it's down to three or four, Richmond, Alexandria, Arlington, couple more. But I founded the Baltimore office and was a nonprofit. So we had board of directors, bylaws, all that, and happened to be a progressive warden at the Baltimore City Jail. And he said he liked what we were doing. He said, I'll get you a city job. And he did. And it turned out after a bit that I had to take a civil service test and pass it to keep the job. Some of the people working for me were also taking this test and get a pardon. Supposedly, you weren't to be at the jail if you had a record, although I know a lot of the guards did have. But I did get a full and unconditional pardon from uh, the pardon attorney for Reagan. I keep trying to find out who it was. I don't think it was Giuliani, but I had to go through that form, go to the local FBI headquarters and be approved for a pardon. It was very natural for me. I was one of the few convicts actually kind of corrected as I spent my time in corrections. I got a career. <laughs> I got a career out of it, for God's sakes. And, you know, I have a pension. I got city and then a state salary. Hey. And probably paid better than poetry. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> There's maybe one or two poets in the states that can make a living. Billy Collins, Louise Gluck, and she makes it more by speaking engagements than selling her books. I mean, that, talk about a fringy occupation. My God. <laughs> well, there's one thing. I just recently interviewed Carl Meyer. Carl Meyer, amongst other things, war tax resistance and war tax refusal, actually, is what he calls it, has been thing he's been involved with. And he's been in jail and in prison a number of times related to that. His comment about prison is that, like for him, for Gandhi or letters from Birmingham jail for MLK, it's a good time to write. You can't do anything else. So, Oh, absolutely. So did you actually write while you were? Oh, yeah, yeah. I would smoke stuff out in my crotch to Louise when... Visitor's Day to the place. Joey, the mafia guy, actually uh, 
took the photos at those events. I have good photos in my book. That's one. I got a photo of the prison. I got a photo of us uh, after the blood pouring. Photos of Transform Now plowshares, Kings Bay 7 plowshares. But I've just struck, I don't want to let go of pushing your efforts. And do you have podcasts of all your interviews? Everything's available via podcast or via the radio stations or directly from my website, all of all of those places. Yeah. What's your website? Northernspiritradio.org is my website. So you'll find my interview with Carl Meyer there, and you'll, you mentioned Norman Morrison. I interviewed his wife. I mean, she was remarried. I mean, she wrote a book about the experience. Right. There's a number of people that you've mentioned that I've got interviews with, uh, either them or someone related to them or their efforts. I did want to ask you something about draft, and I have to admit to my own conflicted feelings about it, because... I am a pacifist. I am a religious pacifist. I'm Quaker, right? And with the many layers that that implies, I am opposed to war. I think war is insane, wrong, and sometimes I can accept that it's even maybe necessary because you may be Ukraine and Russia may want to invade and take you over. I'd at the same time, I'm still opposed to the war. <laughs> you know, yeah. the thing I thought was interesting, I, what I've read is that the opposition to the Vietnam War is the first time that young people rose up and said no to the war and brought the war to an end. It took a lot of years, though. We, we got to admit that, too. I think it also happened in the Soviet Union because of their invasion of Afghanistan back in the 1980s. So, one of the things that made it possible to stop the Vietnam War in the United States was because we had a draft. If it had been a volunteer army at that time, I suspect there would not have been the mass opposition to the war. Uh, there would have still been Quakers and Unitarians and other people, yeah. uh, some Catholic workers who would have been opposed to the war. But it wouldn't have been easy to make it into a mass movement as it turned out. So to some degree, I'd say that having a draft it forces people to be more cognizant of the damage of the war, the what's happening, as opposed to someone who's going off thinking themselves a hero comes back in a coffin. Well, then they're just a hero. Someone who's drafted goes off. He's a martyr. He's a he's fodder for the cannon uh, as opposed to a hero, I think. So I actually question whether having a draft is good for peace. Well, these are the nuances same with abortion. Some issues are very complex. And as an existentialist, in a way, you've got to be there. You're going to be the marshal in high noon that uh, stands up to the thugs, risks his life. It's another movie you haven't mentioned, The Angel and the Bad Man. Do you know that one? No. The Angel and the Bad Man. Oh, I got to get and, that. Wait, you, well, you did. It's a 1947 movie. John Wayne is the main Person. Now, we think of John Wayne as pro-killing or something. You know, he's the tough. In that movie, he falls in love with a young Quaker woman. Oh, my God. And he converts, becomes a, he becomes a Quaker and a pacifist. <laughs> and he risks being killed. Ugh. And it turns out the marshal, the sheriff or whatever, shows up and saves him. But the marshal sheriff wanted to capture the character that John Wayne was playing. And John Wayne, instead of drawing on these people, 
he he's willing to put down his guns and be shot rather than do that because of the because of his love of this young Quaker woman. Wayne was part of the conservative anti-communist actors in Hollywood. Eventually. Oh, okay. Gary Cooper was too, but he could see the brilliance of the script. Well, let's cover just a few more things. What's really important about the action you were part of, uh, you said it's about building the movement. It's about inspiring. And and the plowshares movement is an example of the kind of activist work. We don't want to have nuclear weapons. A mere twitch of the finger could send the world into oblivion, right? So we need to get rid of nuclear weapons. And activism in that area, I would say that even though anti-nuclear activism was very popular in the 1980s, it's been eclipsed, almost ignored these days. Where do you see the movement actually being built and thriving? Yes, I do worry about our types of actions, love them as I do, and love the people. Much of the, most, was it all of the people in the um, Kings Bay were out of Catholic work? And that's why I mentioned that world beyond war is a secular building of the movement. Catholic worker is certainly more religious, but most of the Catholic worker houses foster resistance too. When you think of the members of the Kings Bay, they meditated on what they were going to do for a couple of years. They discerned, discernment is the word they used. And then they come at it from their own Catholic worker houses. Martha Hennessy, Dorothy Day's granddaughter, Patrick O'Neill from Catholic Worker House in North Carolina, Mark Colville, Catholic Worker in Hartford, Connecticut, Carmen Trotter from Mary House, New York City, Liz McAllister, Phil's wife, had been at Jonah House and Phil's House of Resistance. We have a Catholic Worker House in Baltimore called Viva House, and they have been very active in the peace movement. I mean, Brendan, they're, they're older now, but they still serve meals. And Brendan had, he had driven the car with the Catonsville Nine people to the draft board. And he said at one point, Phil was so impatient that he grabbed the wheel. I guess like Trump, you know, trying to go to the Capitol. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Phil, Phil grabbed the wheel and drove himself. <laughs> but that's movement building we can see. People are naturally attracted to those two organizations. The Catholic workers are a little bit more difficult because you live in community. And if you've ever done that, I've come close. It's really hard because like Sartre <laughs> says, hell is other people. You know, I wanna I wanna just be with my wife and son and like, you know, my friends and I people with the well Phil complained a lot about Jonah House to a degree. So all these people, they just go on talking, talking. Frida, his daughter, in her book, It Runs in the Family, she talks about how annoying it was to grow up. And, and she would, went to school, and one guy said to her, one fellow student says, you guys, you must be famous to wear clothes like that. <laughs> she says, we'd have meals with all these vegans, and people changed the word mayonnaise to womenaise, and they wouldn't they wouldn't have salt. They'd have kelp. You know, that was tough. That's tough in being in some communities. But Catholic workers, if you're, you really believe in helping the poor, wow, it's a way to go. 
Well, folks, we've been visiting today with David Eberhardt, his book, For All the Saints, a protest primer. You can get a hold of it via Amazon if you wish, but even better is come to org and follow the links I have there, including his email, 1941 Mire at gmail.com. Mire is M-I-R-E-I-L-L-E. And again, if you want for free, if you can... Give me certain assurances. <laughs> I would send it to you for free because when I run out of this, I've got, I've reached up to 400 now. When I do another 50, I just pay for it. I have a uh, retirement income. And again, in the title, it's a protest primer. You'll learn something about being part of resistance to the bad things going on in the world, the things going on in our country, and particularly trying to change our country. So For All the Saints is the book. You'll also find links on my site to kingsbayplowshare7.org, worldbeyondwar.org, catholicworker.org, and you'll find his email there. Dave, thank you so much for a life of witness, trying to change this country, put us in a better direction. Even though you seem to have considered it as a a minor inconvenience, 21 months in jail is no minor sacrifice that you made for the betterment of our country and probably saving lives of many people who otherwise would have been set off as cannon fodder in Vietnam. Your service to our country in the Baltimore jail and your poetry and the other ways that you try and uplift our spirit. Thank you for doing all that and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, once you got used to it, you took some getting used to the prison experience. But once you felt secure, you just collected stories. Fantastic for a writer, stories. The Mafia guys and Jimmy Hoffa making booze by putting the fruit between the rungs of the radiator. All these little. Important life skills. Yes, important life (laughs) skills. (laughs) Well, thank you for that service. (laughs) Thank you. And again, all these links are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Please come and check out and get a hold of For All the Saints Protest Primer by David Everhart, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.